Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning, uh, I'll be doing a reading uh, from Luke 2, 8 to 15. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that you will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. little bit of fun as we get started. I don't know that I'd be starting off with good King Wenceslas if I was going to start doing a bit of a, a sing-along for carols, but hey, I guess, you know, there's lots of carols from different people. Uh, one of the traditions that we have as churches and as Christians and even broader into the secular society is that we have carol singing. Now, obviously, in churches, oftentimes the carols are about Jesus, and now that's broadened to having all kinds of different carols about all kinds of different things. But, but carols have held a very special place uh, in our culture and in our, in our society for a very long time. Now, it's not really the case anymore that people go around knocking on doors and offering to sing to you when they're there. Uh, I think that's partly the fact that we don't like people coming and knocking on our doors. And uh, unless you are really good at singing, I'm not going to care if you come and sing some carols to me. But there's this idea that carols are such an important part of our culture and it's part of Christmas. Uh, we shared last week and we kind of joked about the fact that uh, the shopping centres start playing the carols in October now, which, okay, that's a little bit early. But there's something about when the calendar turns over to December 1 and the tree goes up and the decorations go out and we actually start to turn our minds towards Christmas, that carols all of a sudden, except for those few of us who are like, oh, carols. But for the rest of us, it's like, okay, now it's time for Christmas. Now it's time to start drawing our attention to that special day and that celebration of Christmas. So as we build towards Christmas this year, what I thought we would do is take some time to look at the theology 
behind the carols that we sing. Now, we only have four Sundays between when we started and when Christmas is, so we're only going to do four carols, not the thousands that have been written. So I've done my best to try and pick four that I think are fairly significant or say something fairly significant to us or are favourites or have different reasons for why they might be chosen. And so today we're going to dig into Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, one that is actually rated fairly highly. It's almost always in the top 10 carols. So when you have lists of what are the top 10 carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing almost always makes an appearance. A little bit of the history of the carol in case you don't know where it came from. It was actually written by the famous Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley was involved in the forming of the Methodist Church. Uh, that's, a, that's a church that we don't really have as much over here now. It's part of the Uniting Church, but it's a very significant historical church. And Charles Wesley actually wrote over 6,000 hymns. 6,000 hymns. His brother, John Wesley, was actually one of those main people involved in starting the Methodist Church. Uh, and Charles was heavily involved in the worship side of it. So he wrote the very original version, and then that was modified by another famous person called George Whitfield in about 1758. Uh, now, from there, it was modified again. Uh, this is what actually used to happen a lot, as carols would go through lots of different iterations, and they, they were changed. Uh, and every now and then, someone else would come along and make a new version of it, uh, and then that's what would become known. Uh, and then in the, in the, what is it, in, 19, in 1855, there it is, in 1855, a guy called William Heyman Cummings, uh, he adopted a secular tune, which is actually what we use today. It was by a guy called Felix Mendelssohn, uh, again, another famous composer of music at the time. And so he took the tune that lots of people knew, and then he put the words of this carol to that tune. And again, this was incredibly common at the time to find something in culture, find something that was known and connect something Christian to it as a way of trying to connect with those who may not necessarily be connected with God. The other thing that was going on back then is copyright didn't exist. Now, the idea that you would actually take something and say, all right, you cannot change this, this is copyrighted to this person, it actually didn't exist. And so what happened in music is you chopped and changed whatever you wanted. And you grabbed someone's bit of words here and you grabbed the tune of that there and you put your own little spin on it and then you released that as your song. I'm not actually giving any comments on whether that's good or bad. It's just what went on. And it's why so many of our carols and so many of our nursery rhymes all have similar tunes because you would take a tune that was known and you would add your music to it. And so it didn't matter if seven songs had the same tune. In fact, that made it easier to sing because you just had to follow what you already knew and add the different words to it. And so that's how we ended up with the version of Hark the Herald Angel Sing we have today. Multiple authors over multiple years uh, and then change of tune towards the end to something that was known and loved uh, and now pretty much stayed the way it's been since that 1855. Uh, the first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing goes like this. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born 
in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. You're going to get this a fair bit. There's this carol, of all the carols, and there's obviously a lot of carols, is incredibly biblical. There's so much packed into what's going on in this run. Uh, so one of the, some of the references for the very first verse that actually really paints the picture of what's going on, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 to 14 says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. Uh, one of the main themes of that first verse and in particular the passages that influenced it is a focus on celebration. I don't think we can actually comprehend what it would have been like for those who actually saw this, to, to have the skies filled with a heavenly host. I mean, if anyone actually talked about seeing an angel, and there are angel experiences where people say they saw an angel and all those different things, that's just one. This is a heavenly host. This is hundreds, thousands, who knows if it's maybe even millions of angels honouring and praising and singing. Glory to God in the highest. Hark, the herald angels sing, coming forth to announce the birth of a newborn king. Uh, another biblical reference that you'll actually find is important is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 19. And it reads like this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone. The new is here. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us the message of reconciliation. Uh, another significant theme in Hark the Herald Angels Sing is actually that idea of reconciliation. The, the heartbeat of the Christian gospel is that God, through his own wisdom and mercy, and we actually don't quite understand exactly the mechanics of this. It's one of those ones we go, all right, God knows what he's doing, and we'll just kind of leave that in the too hard basket, is that he was just not counting people's sins against them. They were due to have it held against them. But God, through Christ, chooses not to have that be a problem. Now, it's up to us to choose to be reconciled. It's up to those people to choose to accept the gift of grace. And so at Christmas time, we were reminded that Jesus actually came down, was born in the humbleness of a child, to be part of that gift of reconciliation. And then the other thing about this verse, which is really important is, and again, I don't understand why God did this. He, he didn't stay, like Jesus didn't stay and then spend the rest of history making sure this took place. 
He said, you do it. Off you go. You know what you're doing. And we went, what? Sorry, I'm not quite sure you got that right. But he did. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so as we sing this song, Hark the Herald, be reminded that it is calling us to that act of reconciliation, that, that those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, it's not just about celebrating Christmas, but recognizing the call that we have to be a part of reconciling a lost world to the Savior who loved us so much. Uh, verse 2 reads like this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Uh, if ever there was a carol that infused more theology in one verse, I, I don't actually think there is a carol that takes more complicated topics and weaves them into one verse within its carol. Uh, we, we sing that because we know the words and we just kind of let them roll off the tongue. But if you actually stop to look at it like we're about to do, uh, you will see just how dense this verse is, just how deeply significant theologically this verse is. Uh, one of the biblical references for this verse uh, is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, uh, and then 22 to 23. This is how the birth of Jesus as Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, that's code in case you weren't sure. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so this is just ticking on that very first bit. Sorry, I jumped forward. There we go. Right, this is looking at the virgin birth. Now, you might, you might think, okay, the virgin birth, whether that's true or not, that's not a big deal. It actually is really important. Uh, theologically, throughout the whole Old Testament, it was always prophesied that the new, the Messiah would come through a virgin. That actually the idea that she was pregnant and it wasn't because she'd actually consummated with her husband was actually a really important aspect of what it meant. Now, theologically, that the tie to this is generally speaking, uh, that sin is passed on through the line of Adam. That through Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, and for whatever reason, again, that's a sermon for another day, it's generally held that it's passed on through the consummation of that relationship. And so for the Messiah to come and to be without sin, the Messiah needed to not be just the natural born child of two human parents. They needed to do something significant, something greater than just another child. If Jesus was born of parents that naturally conceived him, all he could do was die for his own sins. 
But it was actually essential that the Messiah, if they were to come and be a human, and that wasn't even necessarily fully understood until later, the virgin birth is an essential aspect of theology. Uh, it, it's in the, the apostle, it's in the creeds, and the creeds speak to this, and the, the creeds are really the only aspect that all denominations effectively hold to are often the creeds themselves. And so this is a hard one because you go to someone who doesn't believe in Christianity and say, hey, you know, Jesus was born and Mary didn't actually get pregnant. They're going to go, yeah, she's, she's lying. Like something else took place there. Sure, they hadn't come together yet. And it might even be easy to say, all right, well, let's just let that one slide and say, all right, Jesus was actually just the child of Mary and Joseph. It doesn't work theologically. This is actually a really important part of the story of Jesus. The virgin birth is an essential aspect of what it means to actually know the story of faith. But it's a really hard one. It's, it's really kind of, uh, Find anyone who's going to believe the story that Mary was just impregnated by an angel or by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to have some complicated conversations. It's just the realities of the story. And that itself would be enough for the verse, if that was all it even spoke to. But actually, there's all these other things that it actually speaks to. Uh, some of the other concepts that it speaks to is it talks about the Godhead, which is just another way of framing the word for Trinity. The idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all at one time God, but also are equally separately individual. That Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God and the Father is is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Trinity is a deeply theological concept that this carol speaks to. And again, it just rolls off the tongue. You know, the, the goldhead, rah, rah, rah. It's like, oh yeah, we just sing this. But what you're singing is incredibly rich and incredibly important to wrestle with what does that mean. Uh, some of the references to the Trinity, because not all Christians at least not all people who call themselves Christians. There would be some arguments for me theologically if you don't believe in the Trinity. I would have questions about whether or not you do actually understand what the Bible is teaching. Uh, is Matthew 28, 19 speaks to it. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 speak to it. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 speak to it. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 2 speaks to it. And then Revelation 1, 4 to 6. And that was just a small amount that have really significant things. Uh, we do not have time to dig into that today. That's a sermon series of about 10 weeks. Uh, so please feel free to take a photo of the screen and go home and have a read through some of those. Because the Trinity is such a big, deep theological aspect of our faith. Uh, it also speaks of the incarnate deity. What's this, these big words that we use in everyday language? Uh, incarnate means it's enfleshed or in bodily form. It's this idea that God himself or God themself or God herself, yes, I went there. God has masculine and feminine traits. Yes, God is the father, but God also is the maker of male and female. But that God would choose to be enfleshed in bodily form. Now, in ancient times, it was not uncommon for gods to come down and mingle with people, at least you know, in the view of the Greeks and those at this time. 
But the idea that a God would come down and actually just take on the form of a human and actually not just be this almighty God like Zeus who could still do all the things that God would do, that Jesus actually took on the frailty of human form. He humbled himself to be just like us. Uh, Galatians 4 verse 4 to 7 speaks to this. Philippians 2 verse 5 to 8 speaks to this. Hebrews 10 verse 5 to 7 speaks to this. 1 John 4 2 speaks to this. And 1 Timothy 3 16 speaks to the importance of an incarnate deity, deity being a God, that God would choose to come and be enfleshed. Uh, and not just that, then Emmanuel has a close significance to this. And Emmanuel means God with us. That God didn't just stay up in the lofty uh, heavens. And in coming down, again, when a lot of the gods in other thought, like Greek thought, when they came down, they came down for their own purposes. They came down for their own benefit. They came down to to sort of, you know, lord it over the people that were there or to call tribute from them. But the God that we celebrate chose to come and be with us to be for us. He chose to be with us to serve us. He chose to be with us to die for us. And that is not like any other God that has ever been celebrated. That God would choose to be Emmanuel, would be in our presence, and would then leave the Spirit to be a gift and a deposit to walk with us and lead us and guide us. It's a significant aspect of what's going on. And that's just verse 2. Verse 3, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn Uh, Here we have some references from Isaiah. So Isaiah, which is a very big prophetic book about Jesus coming. In chapter 9, verse 6, says this. "For, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says this, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You'll go out and frolic. I love that. It's a great little place for the word to be. Like well-fed calves. Uh, Verse 3, in many ways, is really talking about the idea that this hoped-for saviour had so many names. And this is, again, just a small little smattering of the names of the expected Messiah. And the reason why something would have lots of names is because each name would convey part of the expectation. Each name would convey a little bit of the character of what you expect to see. Each name brings something else to the picture that is being painted in this person, this Messiah, this expected newborn king. And as we sing verse 3, we're really speaking to that hope 
the hope that things can be different, the hope that this Messiah will bring change to a world that needs it, and that each of the names that we know for this Messiah will bring something new and fresh. And so we sing triumphantly of half the herald angels sing that they're bringing before us. Here is that king you've been longing for. Here is that king that you've been waiting for. Here is that king. Uh, We also have from Philippians 2 verse 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's that incarnate deity aspect. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The verse at verse 3 really speaks to the fact that Jesus was marked by humility. And one of the main reasons why he was marked by humility is he was coming to live to be a model. See, God could have just come down from the sky and just said, just do these things. But he chose to be in flesh, he chose to be incarnate. He chose to walk the steps that we would have to walk. He chose to go through puberty. He chose to go through the challenge of of going through becoming an adult and of being a child. And uh, We don't get told a lot about his childhood, but we definitely get the sense that he was a normal child. Part of the premise of Jesus' coming was that he was not a super child. He was naughty. You know, he didn't sin in his naughtiness, but he probably had to actually have you know, Mary and Joseph come and have a word with him and different things like that. But he actually modelled the way for us to live. And so a large part of the things, and as we look at our carol today, he modelled humility. He didn't see, he didn't need to go. He was God. Jesus was God. The Godhead is there but actually didn't see using the privilege of being God for his own advantage. He could have lorded over the world. He could have come down and set up the kingdom and made it his slaves and servants and had us do our, our, his own bidding, but he chose to give his life for us. And at the end of each of these verses, you'll see there's the return. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That the big idea, the big invitation that actually comes from this carol is that you are invited to join the heavenly chorus. You're not invited to become an angel. That's not what it's saying. It's reminding you and drawing you to be a part of that moment. That, that just as the angels in that moment came forth and burst into song because they knew this man would be king. You who have decided to follow Jesus you have decided and recognized the role that Jesus played, are invited this year and every year. And in fact, this doesn't have to be a Christmas thing. This is an everyday thing. 
you're invited to sing the song of Jesus as Lord in this world today. That you're invited to be part of the story. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Uh, if you're here today, maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe you've not actually made the decision to follow Jesus. You're just sort of on a journey around that. The question I'd love you to ponder, especially as we draw towards Christmas, is what if God really did become one of us? What if it is true? What if the story we celebrate at Christmas, and it is more than just carols and more than Santa and more than Christmas trees and more than lights and more than presents and more than stockings, what if what we celebrate at Christmas is true and he really did become one of us and then give his life for us? What if that's true? you're exploring faith or if maybe you've been maybe you've been on the journey for a long time and you actually just need to go back to the beginning and back to reflecting on the very heart of what Christmas draws us to uh, if you're maybe returning to faith so you've been in faith and but for whatever reason maybe it's diminished or maybe it's got less or maybe you've just had a bit of a wander outside of the walls for a little while would you re reconsider the simple Christian message the king has come. The king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you would let the reality of that sink deep into your heart, it will change your practice each and every day. If you wake up every day and you're reminded that Jesus is in fact the king, that Jesus is in fact Lord, that he is in fact in charge of what's going on in the world, that he is working to bring it back to reconciliation, that he is actually alive and active in your circumstances, no matter how challenging they might be right now, it will change and shape what you do. And then finally, if you've got an established faith and Christmas is just another, this is just another Christmas for you because, you know, Christmas comes and that's part of your journey. I'd love you to think about which aspect of faith has today's message most reminded you of? As you've thought through the different topics that were raised, uh, of all the carols that I'm looking at, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is definitely one of the most deeply theological. But in some ways, because of its carol nature, we don't take the time to ponder it. We just sing the words because they come off and then we move on to the next carol. But of those topics that were raised today, which of those has it most reminded you of and which one do you need to go away and actually think about and reflect on and dig into and be reminded of? Is it the Trinity or is it the idea that God came and was in flesh, that he came to be with us? Is it any of those? Is it something else that maybe came to your mind as we went through this? Is it the invitation to be a part of the chorus and what that looks like in your life? You are invited to be part of that angelic chorus singing out to our world today. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that words can be so deep and so rich. We thank you for this carol and the reminders that it brings. That you chose to be humble. You chose to come to be one of us, to to model for us what it meant to live. 
We thank you that we can be a part of that reconciliation process of drawing people back to you. And so we pray that this Christmas, you would give each of us different opportunities. Maybe it's with our friends, maybe it's our family, maybe it's our colleagues, whoever it might be. And help us draw them to see just a little bit more of who you are. We thank you in Jesus' name.